chapter 1. We're going to pick up our text at verse 19. We're going to cover verses 19 through 51. That's the end of the chapter. If you need a Bible to follow along with us, if you're in the back there, you can just lift your hand up and Pastor John will slip you a Bible so you can follow along with us. Again, we'll begin reading at verse 19 and then we'll go through the rest of the chapter in our verse-by-verse study of John's Gospel. So looking forward to uh, going through this incredible book. Uh, it is the most read book of the Bible, and um, it is proclaiming Jesus very, very clearly. So John chapter 1, verse 19. And we know that, as we talked about last week, that uh, John will base his writings on seven signs, seven miracles, and then also seven statements that Jesus makes of deity, the seven statements of I am, ego ami in the Greek. And last week, as we read, that John, right away in the very first verse, establishes the fact that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word, of course, being a name for Jesus. And in verse 3, also he declares that all things were made through him, so we know that Jesus is the creator of heaven and earth and all that is in the heavens and the earth. And, and the word became flesh, verse 14, and tabernacled among us or dwelt among us. God in the person of Jesus Christ. God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the word would become flesh as Jesus would come and reveal to us the heart and the character and the nature and the grace and the love of God. Jesus would say to Philip in that upper room, that Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that's where we left off at verse 18. As verse 18 declares, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So Jesus, always remember this, is the perfect representation and, de- and declaration of the unseen Father. And as we go through this wonderful gospel, we will see the word revealed to us our loving Father. So let's continue, but before we do, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless this time in the study of your word as we finish chapter one here. And Lord, we are thankful that we can be here on this beautiful uh, Sunday in June. And Lord, just to be able to take in and, and see once again Jesus being declared to us. And even as those who came to Jerusalem and said, we wish to see Jesus, that's our hope and that's our prayer this morning, that we would see Jesus clearly, that you would bless this time of the study of your word, that it would encourage us, Lord, that Jesus is our hope and that he is light and that he is life and he came to give us life and life abundantly. So we open our ears and our hearts to you this morning as we study your word in Jesus' name. And so let's pick up our text at verse 19 of John chapter 1, that now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed that, um, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. In verse uh, 21, and they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? And what do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John comes on the scene here, and that is John the Baptist. And we see here, and as well as the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that John's ministry at this time is really 
uh, getting attention throughout the nation. It, it is very influential, uh, so much so that the religious authorities say that we need to send some to go uh, and see what's going on out there in the wilderness. So they send some that minister there at the temple in Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites coming from, as we're going to read from the Pharisees, to ask him who he claims to be. Now remember at this time that there has been 400 years of silence in the land. And what I mean by that, by the time you close the Old Testament, Malachi, who was around during the time of Nehemiah, we're studying Nehemiah on Wednesday nights, Nehemiah that would come back to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, 400 years before the birth of Christ, before John the Baptist comes on the scene, that we know that those are called the silent years. 400 years that a prophet wasn't in the land, and all of a sudden there's this one out in the wilderness, and people are, are going out there to see him. So the religious leaders come to, you know, to see what's going on. Who does he claim to be? Are you the Christ, the Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament? No is the response of John the Baptist. Are you the prophet spoken of in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, verse 15? No, I am not him. Are you Elijah? And of course, Malachi ends, the Old Testament ends with the promise that there will be the coming of Elijah before the dreadful day of the Lord. Are you Elijah? According to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. No, I am not Elijah. And we know from the other Gospels, again, that people were coming from all over the nation. And they were coming out to see John the Baptist. They were getting baptized. They're out there in the wilderness. Now, when we read wilderness out here, don't think of Rocky Mountain National Park or the Raywall Wilderness, or, or something like that. It's very beautiful. It is hot, and it is barren, and it is dry, and it's desert, and it's rocky, and it's isolated. And all of a sudden now, people are coming out to this wilderness on, uh, to see this man of the desert. And so much so that the religious leaders say, we better see what this is about. Who are you? And the response of John the Baptist was this, that I am that voice of one crying in the wilderness that Isaiah spoke of. Prepare the way of the Lord. That is why I'm here. That is my message. That is my ministry. And you see, as we stop and think about this, I believe that we can learn from John the Baptist most definitely. You see, he wasn't there just to talk about himself. He was there to talk about and appoint people to Jesus. And that's what you and I are to do. We are to be that voice of one that is pointing people to Jesus, preparing people to see Jesus. And we're going to see in John's gospel that this John of the wilderness, that is John the Baptist, will speak of his joy being fulfilled. We will read that when we get to chapter 3. And his joy is fulfilled because he was certain in his ministry and in his purpose and in his priority in life. And that was he was to talk about Jesus, not about himself. He's not talking about his awesome ministry and look at me and, and notice all the huge crowds. But no, he would say, behold, the Lamb of God. Let's continue reading in verse 24. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. 
And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. In verse 28, these things were done in Bethabar beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So John's in that place in Bethabara, out there in the desert. Now, if you go to Israel with us next year, we will drive by that place, Bethabar. We won't actually go to the river down there because of the political situation, but we will drive by, and you will see that in that area that it is desert. It's near the Dead Sea, right above it, where the Jordan River geographically flows from the Sea of Galilee, which is very beautiful, very lush, very green, but it flows into the Jordan Valley and to the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on the face of the earth. But it is very, very dry there. And here is John the Baptist. We know again from the gospel narratives that he's clothed in camel's hair. He's wearing a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. And we think about that and we think, well, it's not the best of situations. And maybe perhaps as we talk about John the Baptist, and most of you are very familiar with his ministry and have read about him, when you think about John the Baptist and wearing camel's you know, uh, skins and, and eating ho- locusts and grasshoppers and, and honey and out there in the wilderness, you kind of picture this wild guy, don't you? This weird-looking man. But in reality... It's what the extremely poor people, that area, that's what they wore. They didn't have, you know, dress barn or they didn't have coals or, you know, places to go shopping like that. That's what they would wear. And they would eat locusts and, and honey and, and grasshoppers. That was some of their diet. So here's John. is in the hot desert, and it is very hot out there. Even in the wintertime, it's hot out there. And I just picture him as he's eating you know, honey and some of the honey in his beard and there's maybe a little locust wing stuck there or something in his beard or, you know, and he's extremely poor and it's, it's not easy and camel's hair, I mean, camel skins. If you've ever seen a camel, most of you have, but again, if you go to the Middle East and you look at camels, you don't look at that camel and say, boy, that'd be neat to have, you know, a camel coat or a camel you know, skins to wear or something. Um, It's very, very um, not pretty at all, in other words. So here he is out there, and he's full of joy. As John chapter 3 says, his joy was full. And matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said of John the Baptist that greater is no man that's been born of woman up to that point, but he who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. We know that later on in this gospel, in chapter 10, that Jesus is going to say that John the Baptist, even though he had this incredible ministry, he did no miracles. In other words, he didn't raise the dead. He's not out there and having this powerful healing ministry. He did no miracles. But all this that he spoke concerning Jesus was true. And again, as we consider this, we can learn so much from John the Baptist because sometimes we can go through life and we seem to think, Lord, I, I lack identity and, and nobody's noticing me. And we can go through what people call midlife crisis vocationally and, 
and you get upset at where you're at and the place that I'm at at work or where I'm living, it feels like a desert. But here's the thing to remember, that no matter where you are or how deserted you might feel or how dry the situation is around you, our purpose is simply to be that voice that is crying out to a world that behold the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who has come to die for you and loves you and desires to save you and give you that life abundantly. And so many people, and that includes many Christians, will go through just kind of personal crisis and trying to find themselves or trying to be noticed or trying to impress people around them, trying to find their identity, and they don't realize that our identity as Christians is ultimately and primarily isn't just in a career. It isn't in trying to, to have... Uh, popularity or status but as Christians our identity is being that voice that is crying out to a lost world about Jesus as we saw declared last week that in him and in him alone is eternal life and life abundantly in verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the, the sins of the world. As you say in your life that I'm going to be that voice that talks about the nature and the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ, you know what you're going to discover? You're going to discover what John did here. John says to those religious leaders, There's one in the midst of you whom you do not know. I'm not worthy to lose a sandal strap. And, and, but as I talk about him and prepare you for him, guess who shows up? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, you and I, as we talk about Jesus, you're going to find what John found out. In the midst of your office, guys, or out there in the fields, as you're working very hard out there, or in your home, or in the classroom, wherever you're planted presently, when you talk about Jesus, guess who's going to show up? You're going to sense the presence of Jesus, that he's there. We can talk about a lot of other things. We can talk about, you know, sports. We can talk about fishing. I like to talk about fishing. We can talk about politics. We can talk about the earthquake that happened last night. Uh, all kinds of things that we can talk about. And there's nothing wrong with talking about those things. But you're not necessarily going to, to feel the presence of the Lord as we do that. But let the conversation be turned to Jesus Christ. Suddenly you're going to perceive that he's in the midst of you. Because like John, you are declaring him and you're talking about him. So what identity do you and I have primarily as Christians? It is this, being a voice, talking and sharing and communicating about Jesus Christ wherever you are at and wherever it is that you're doing. And as you do, you will find that your joy will be truly fulfilled and that you will be great as well. Because he was the greatest born among women up to this point, even though he did no miracles. Now, if I was asked 2,000 years ago, who's the greatest born among women up to this point? I would have thought, uh, it's got to be Moses. I mean, look at Moses, his ministry, absolutely incredible, and called down the plagues on Egypt and parted the Red Sea and all that he went through. Or maybe perhaps, you know, Elijah, who called down fire from heaven. 
Last night, you know, we were sitting around the living room and we were talking about, you know, David and his mighty men. And, and those guys were absolutely incredible. I mean, they jumped in the pits and, and killed lions and took on giants. And, and how amazing that it was the Spirit of God on these men, the mighty men of David. And just talking about how amazing it must have been to see that. And, you know, and... and I would have thought, somebody like that. But it is John who didn't work in any miracles. And his ministry is that he simply spoke of Jesus. And you and I can do that presently in our home and in our neighborhoods and at the workplace or wherever you might be, you be that voice that says, Behold the Lamb of God. And when John says behold, that word behold means to study. To study very, very carefully. Not just glance at, but look at him. Study him. Know who he is. Study and focus on Jesus, and that's what you and I are to do. The most important thing is to know him better and to know him more. And that's why I'm so looking forward to continuing to go through John's gospel because we're going to see Jesus so clearly and to know him more as we go through this gospel. So behold, the Lamb of God, in verse 30, this is he, as John continues speaking of Jesus, of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. So remember that John, John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins, and John, we know from Luke's gospel, was six months older than Jesus. And even though John was older chronologically, John recognizes that Jesus was deity. He was before me. Jesus. You see, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 31, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water and to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In verse 34, and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. John, of course, was the one who baptized Jesus, and in Matthew's account, as he pulled Jesus out of the water, there was a voice from heaven which said, This is my beloved Son, in which I am well pleased, as the dove came and descended upon Jesus. The dove, of course, was the person and power of the Holy Spirit. Now the question is asked, why was Jesus baptized? Was it just to be an example to us that we should be baptized? I, I think it was more than that. And when you think about John's baptism out here in the wilderness, we know that John says that his baptism was a baptism of repentance. So why was Jesus baptized? Because think about this. This man, Jesus, who had no sin, nothing to repent of, he is at the age of 30, he has lived a flawless life for 30 years, he has never said or thought anything that was contrary to the will and the heart of God. It's interesting, as we listen to what Jesus has to say about baptism, he very rarely used the word baptism. Matter of fact, after this, the only two times that he spoke of baptism that I can find, both times he's not talking about being baptized in water, 
he talked about being baptized unto death. Remember the two disciples, James and John, had their mom come to Jesus and asked Jesus, you know, hey, can you make my sons number one and two in the kingdom? And he said to her, I have a cup to drink and a baptism to be baptized with. Can you drink of that cup? Can you be baptized with that baptism? In another place, he said, I have a baptism that I must be baptized with, and I'm determined to set my face towards Jerusalem until I accomplish that baptism. Both times he was talking about being immersed with the sufferings of sinful humanity. He was talking about dying for our sins. So why did Jesus go to be baptized by John? I think that he was doing what he was doing as he walked down to that river is that he was publicly committing himself to go to the cross. And so the very first thing that Jesus does in his public ministry is that he walks down to be baptized, committing himself to the way of the cross, committing himself totally to die on the cross for our sins and the sins of the world. He knew that when he went down into those waters, that it would be just a few short years later that he would be immersed in the sufferings of sinful humanity, taking our place and dying for us. And I believe that's the reason that he went. And when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. Now, what does that mean? It's interesting, again, that the Holy Spirit never appears anywhere else in Scripture, you know, like a dove. Never before this, never after this, does he appear like a dove. This is singular, the only instance. It is unique in all of Scripture. So what does it mean? Well, as a lot of you know, as we've been studying the Old Testament, that under the Old Testament law, when you committed a sin, you were to go and select a lamb. That lamb was to be without spot and without blemish. And you would bring it as a sin sacrifice to the priest. And if you could not afford a lamb, then you were to bring a dove. The dove was a sacrifice for the poor person. And as you brought that gentle, innocent little bird, you would watch the priest as that priest would wring his head off and then sprinkle the blood all around. And you would become very, very aware. It was a real object lesson for you. Because as you watched that process, you knew that it was because of your sin that an innocent life was slain. You saw and you knew that a pure, innocent, tender life was taken because of your rebellion against God. And it pressed upon you the seriousness and the reality of sin. Behold the Lamb of God. Now the Lamb and the dove are more similar than we think. You say, how's that, Pastor Jeff? The Lamb is to the animal kingdom as the dove is to the bird kingdom. And what I mean by that, they are both very gentle creatures. They're both defenseless creatures. They are both have many enemies, yet they themselves are not the enemy of anything. Both have to be protected, both are easily frightened, both are very gentle. And so God chose them as symbols of the innocent life that had to be given when we sin. When Joseph and Mary came to offer a sacrifice, they brought a dove because Joseph and Mary were poor. And here Jesus comes out 
out of the water. He has just publicly committed himself to go to the cross, and now the Spirit of God comes in the form of a dove and descends upon him to give him the power in his earthly ministry and to go to the cross. The Holy Spirit was anointing Jesus as a human being and giving him the power and to endure up to and including the cross. And in verse 35, and again the next day, John stood with the two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. John again showing us what being a true minister is really all about. His preaching was to point people, to, to nudge people, to push people to Jesus. He's not drawing people after himself. You know, it's interesting that when Paul was warning the Ephesian elders there in the book of Ephesians, he said that, be careful, because there's going to be guys that are going to rise up speaking perverse things, and they're going to be drawing disciples after themselves. The men of God that are used greatly in the scriptures were always pointing people to the Lord. And John the Baptist here is pointing people to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God. Now these disciples of John shift their allegiance from John to Jesus. And that always is the result of true ministry. When people are shifted in their allegiance from denominations and personalities to Jesus Christ personally, specifically, that needs to be the purpose of your ministry, my ministry, of your service. As you talk with people, as you minister to people, it should always be with the purpose of just pointing them closer to Jesus, not building disciples after yourself, not binding people to you, but to get them closer to Jesus and to behold Jesus Christ. And you see, John, as we're going to see in chapter 3 again, that he says something very important that needs to be true for every single one of us, that John's going to say that he, that is Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. And he was saying that when the people began to leave the wilderness out there, John the Baptist, and begin to follow Jesus, and John's saying that's what's supposed to happen. That he increases and I decrease. We point people to him. And verse 38, Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? So the first words that we have of Jesus here in John's gospel is, What do you seek? And I believe that Jesus still utters these words to us. What is it that you seek truly? And the honesty of your heart, what is it that you're looking for? What is it that you're seeking in life? Even though you know the Lord. Because there will be so many things that are trying to get our attention that can distract us away from the Lord. And we begin to, as we journey in life, begin to think, well, I, I need this thing and I seek that and this financial gain and, and I want this relationship. In John chapter 21, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we're going to see is as the disciples go up to the Sea of Galilee and they're fishing all night long and they toil and they strain and they're fishing and all of a sudden somebody calls from the shore and says, have you caught any fish, boys? And they said, no, we haven't. 
and Jesus would reveal himself to them to where they realized that it was the Lord and they would come to shore and there's Jesus. He, he has fish that he's baking for them for breakfast. He's making breakfast for the guys and the thing that the guys were laboring for and straining for and working for and, and striving for all night long, the whole time Jesus had it. And I want you to know whatever it is the fulfillment or satisfaction that you're desiring in life uh, and, and real meaning and purpose, Jesus has it. And he asks you and me, all of us, what is it that you're really seeking? Are you seeking him? To draw closer to him, to know him, to behold him. Teacher, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it's about the 10th hour. Aren't you thankful that Jesus always says, come and see? That he doesn't say, beat it, get lost, get away from me. I only want the cool people to come around me, certain people, the beautiful people, the smart people, the successful people. No, it isn't that way. It is always come and see. In Matthew chapter 11, what did he say? Come to me all, all who are weary and heavy laden. And learn of me. In Mark chapter 10, let the children come unto me. And now he says, here's, we're going to see in John's gospel, he says, come and see. And he says that to us, come and see, receive from him eternal life, abundant life, because I have come to give you life, he declares in life abundantly. And he tells us then after come and see, then he says that you are to go to go out and be my witnesses, go out into all the world. But he never tells us to go until first he tells us to come. Coming to him for salvation. And not just for salvation that we receive as we surrender our lives to him, but to come every day to him, to know him, depend on him, to trust him, to live in his love, to come and see, he says, to you and to me. And then you can go and bring others, which we're going to see that Andrew's going to do as we continue reading here. Let's look at that in verse 40. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Andrew is one of the twelve, of course, who is mentioned in the scriptures. He's not mentioned a whole lot in the Gospels, but... When he is in mentioned, you'll notice that he's always bringing people to Jesus. Here in John chapter 1 and John chapter 6, he's going to be the one that's going to bring that little boy with the fish and loaves to Jesus. In John chapter 12, as the Greeks came to, to see Jesus, they came to Andrew. So here he's bringing people to Jesus. I want to be more like that. I want to be more like Andrew. I just want to bring people to Jesus. And here he begins with his family. And that's a good place for us to begin as we bring people to Jesus. And he brings his brother Simon. Simon, as a lot of you know, means shifting sand, signifying instability. Simon, your life is like shifting sand. That's the way it is with anybody who doesn't have Jesus in their life. It's just shaky. It's shifty. It's, it's not stable. But Jesus says, I see what you're going to be. 
and I'm going to change your name from Simon, son of Jonah, to Cephas or Peter Petras, a rock. Peter, there's going to be some real deep changes that are going to take place in your life personally that's going to bring strength and stability. And it's the same with us as we just come and see, as we behold him, as we yield to him. And in verse 43, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And verse 46, And Nathanael said to him, Can any good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Can any good thing come out of, of Nazareth? Now Nazareth was located in the northern region of Israel in the northern part of the Jezreel Valley. It's still there today. Now, in Jesus' day, Israel was divided up into three regions. The northern part was Galilee, the middle section was Samaria, and then the southern region was Judea. Judea is where Jerusalem was. That's the capital, uh, God's religious cap, uh, capital of the nation. That's where all the religious leaders, most of them hung out. That's where, uh, you know, everybody would come for the feast. That's where the learning institutions were. Now, the people of Judea, a lot of them looked down on the people of Galilee because that's where in Galilee all the untrained and uneducated people were. Bunch of farmers, you know, and fishermen and Gentiles. And out of that despised region of Galilee, Nazareth was hated most of all. It was off the beaten path. It was off the main trade routes. Forgotten. It wasn't important economically. It wasn't, you know, stimulating culturally. It had no importance politically. It was out there in the sticks. Nothing any good had come out of Nazareth. Matter of fact, Jesus being raised there, nothing else has ever happened in the history of Nazareth you know, of significance has ever come out of Nazareth. It's still a little town off the beaten track. Everybody wants to go to Israel wants to see Nazareth. So what we do is we stop the bus, you look around, you see there's not a whole lot. It's actually a city of 100,000 people. But, you know, it's just kind of on the edge of the Jezreel Valley. And, and here the attitude of those in Nazareth at this time was just a small village. Did anything good, can that come out of Nazareth? And maybe, just maybe, you might be here. And you might be thinking, can anything good come out of my life? Or you might have an attitude towards somebody. And you're thinking, can anything good come out of their life? And Jesus would say, come and see. If you're thinking, can anything good come from my life? Jesus says to you, come and see. Come and see that I've died for you. And you have forgiveness that's available for you. And recognize that I am the source of eternal life. And I'll make you a new creation in Christ. Come and see what he can do with your life. And for that person that perhaps you think, can anything good? Because I think all of us, if not, you know, most of us, if not all of us, that we know people that, boy, the, what they're going through in life. Jesus is the answer for them. And keep presenting them Jesus and praying for them. So here is Nathaniel. Can anything good come out of, of Nazareth? And verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming towards him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed at whom is no deceit. Now, he's beginning to make reference to something and and that is Jacob. 
Jacob of the Old Testament, and we'll see it as it unfolds here. Jacob, his me- name means guile, deceit, heel snatcher, tricky one. Now, you know the story of Jacob in the Old Testament. Again, he tricked his brother Esau out of the birthright and a blessing that was supposed to be his. And Jacob was the kind of guy that was always conniving, always planning, always, you know, um, you know trying to, to come up with a plan. And he was very good at that. He was clever. He was shrewd. He was talented. He's the kind of guy that, that anybody would want as a salesman is what Jacob kind of was. And the Lord would end up working with Jacob, that heel snatcher, and change them. You see, one time Jacob's coming back with his family from Pandanaran after being there for 20 years. And he had tricked his brother Esau out of the birthright. He had tricked his, his uncle Laban. He's coming back. And he can't go forward because Esau's coming at him with 400 men, as you read there in chapter 32 of Genesis. He can't go backwards because Laban said, if you come back, we're going to do you harm. So he's there at the brook, and all of a sudden he can't go forward, he can't go backwards, he can't come up with a plan, he can't connive, he can't, you know, come up with this, you know, anything. He's there. And all of a sudden the Lord comes up and begins to wrestle with him. And Jacob wrestles with him all night long, and the Lord would dislocate Jacob's hip in that wrestling tournament. And the Lord would say to Jacob, what's your name? Now, it wasn't that the Lord didn't know his name, but Jacob had to admit that I'm heel snatcher, I'm guile, I'm, I'm the deceitful one. I've relied on my own abilities and my trickery and my own planning and conniving and I'm tired of it. And Jacob would cry out with tears, as the scripture says, that I want your blessings and I won't let you go till you bless me. And the Lord would say to Jacob that I'm no longer going to call you Jacob, but your name now is going to be called Israel, which most of you know means governed by God. And you see, that's the place where the Lord wants us to be where we stop relying on our own abilities and our trickeries. There's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with using our intellect. But there's a dependency on the Lord. And the Lord desires for each one of us to be called Israel, governed by Him. Man can make the plans, but God directs the steps in our lives where we are submitted to Him and we're just being led by Him in everything. But oftentimes there comes a breaking to get us there, just as it was with Jacob. There's a breaking that happens in our lives as the Lord is working in our lives to get us to that place where truly that we're called Israel. Now watch this as the story unfolds, and then we'll finish up. Nathaniel, verse 48, said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. In Jesus' day, back in the Old Testament times, what students would do is they would study the scriptures under a fig tree. The fig tree is and was the national symbol of Israel. And it was tradition that the rabbis had their students study under the fig tree. That's where they would have their devotions. That's where they would spend time praying. And I think that's what Nathaniel most definitely is doing. And I think that it gives us reference what it is that he was studying in Genesis chapter 28. 
That's one of the reasons why we called our radio program Under the Fig Tree. It's more than just a play on words. Under the Fig Tree by Pastor Jeff Figs. It has meaning to it. And that is a place where devotion has taken place and the study of God's word. In the book of Jeremiah, it speaks of peace, God's peace. And, and, and it it's, has real meaning here. So here, if I had to guess what he's studying, well, definitely, here's Nathaniel, Genesis chapter 28, and the Lord makes mention of it. Now, what is Genesis chapter 28? One more minute and we're done. Jacob's out there in the wilderness running from his brother Esau because he had tricked Esau and received a blessing that was meant for him, for Esau. So he was fleeing for his life. He went to sleep using a rock as a pillow. He lays his head down. And as he's sleeping, he sees a ladder extending from the heavens to the earth and angels ascending and descending upon that ladder. And he wakes up, Jacob does, and he says that God is in this place and I didn't know it. And he called that place Bethel, which means the house of God. God is here and I didn't even know it. Even though the surroundings are barren and rocky and my circumstances are not good personally. And God yet shows me that even though externally it is rough and internally that I struggle. And you might be thinking, so there was a little earthquake last night. My whole life has been shaken up because of the circumstances that I'm facing. And I want you to know this, that the Lord sees you. I see you, Nathaniel, under that tree, and you're going to see great things. And I'm the link to heaven I'm the link between heaven and earth. I'm that ladder. But I want you to know something, just as Jacob found out, that even in the difficulties where he didn't know what was going to happen and what he has gone through, that the Lord is with you. That's the God that we serve, that I am with you, and I see what it is that you're going through, and I love you, and his promises are true for you. To work in your situation to draw you to himself. And he says, trust in me, trust in me and rest in my love and come and see as you just draw closer to the Lord, as you look to him. And you know what you'll find? That God is here. And he's in my life and I didn't even know it. I thought he had abandoned me. Or perhaps that he'd forsaken me. And he says, no what you will find is you come and see that I am with you to give you the strength to increase your faith so you can see my goodness being worked out even in the midst of trials and difficulties that you see in life and go through in life. And so, Father, we thank you that you're the one that does see us and that we can come and see not to push you away, the Lord, come and see. Father, I want to pray this morning for anybody that may be listening to this message here at Calvary or later on on the radio. That maybe you're here and the invitation is given, come and see. Maybe you've never come to Jesus. And we want to give you that opportunity to come and see and know that Jesus died for your sins, that he is life. There is no other source of eternal life. 
No one else died for you. No one else rose from the grave, only Jesus. And as you come, you realize your need for him, that you have sinned, because the Bible declares all of us have sinned. That you turn to him, that's what repenting means, and you surrender your life to him. He loves you so much. Come, he says. Believe in him. The free gift of salvation is you come in faith, putting your faith and trust in the Son of God, that he died for your sins and he rose again and he's alive. And you say, my life is not its own. I now surrender my life to you, Jesus. I come and I confess that I am a sinner. If that means anything to anyone here, you pray that right where you're sitting, that I have sinned and I now come to you, the Son of God, who went to the cross and died for my sins. I believe you died for me. Forgive me of my sins and that you rose again from the grave and you're alive and you're with me and I didn't even know you'd be in this place in this house of God. But I accept the invitation given to come and see and come and receive. Be my personal Lord and Savior. I surrender my life to you fully, Jesus. And for us here this morning, wherever you're at in life, is we now come to the communion tables, we hold the elements in our hands. That as you remember Jesus, his body being broken for you and his blood shed for forgiveness of sin as you hold the cup, that you remember that if you can trust him with your salvation, that you can trust him in whatever circumstance you're going through. That he loves you so much and we may not understand it all. But the scripture says, don't think it's strange when you go through fiery trials. But know that God is good and he's with you. And he desires to minister to you whatever it is that you need, the comfort, the strength that you need, the wisdom that you need. Just remember what he went through for you because of his love for you. Lord, thank you for this time that we can just do that. And the ushers are going to hand out the elements, and I would ask that you would hang on to them together, and we'll partake of them together.
bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take of the bread together. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take of the cup together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And so, Father, we thank you that Jesus did come to give us hope, to give us life, and life abundantly. And Father, my prayer is that we would go out being a voice of one crying in the wilderness of this world, pointing people to Jesus. Father, that we would draw close to him and behold him, to see his glory and his light, and Lord, that you would just continue doing that work in us, the work of the Spirit. Father, I do want to lift up this morning Marilyn Collison. Tom, her husband, went home to be with the Lord this weekend. We're going to miss Tom. But Lord, we thank you that we can rejoice that he's with you. So Lord, we pray for comfort for her and her family. And Lord, for all of us, that we can go out of this place knowing that you're our hope. And Lord, that you're going to see us through. And that your promises are true. Bless everyone here as we go our way now. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen.